Coming to you from helping our music evolve in Nashville, this is the Quinn Spin. Hey now, and welcome once again, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, one and all, to a brand new edition of the Quinn Spin. I'm your host, the Quinn. I'm back here at Helping Our Music Evolve in the heart of Music City, East Nashville, Tennessee. Happy December. We have made it to the final month of 2020. and can hear the sighs of relief from through your computers and phones and wherever you're listening to this. And you just heard Revel 9's All I've Become, our opening theme song, which has been there since 2014 and is going to follow us into 2021 and probably till the end of time. And I am so excited today. I am joined by Connor Christian of the Southern Gothic, and they have a new EP just out. It's called Burning Moonlight. Just released this past Friday as of air date here. And Connor, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And we have plenty to talk about today. I'm really excited for this conversation. But first, I ask every new guest of the show three standard questions so the audience can get to know you a little better. Who are you? What are your passions? And why on earth would you want to come on the Quinn Spin? All right. Fair enough. Uh, Start with my passions. Uh, I am crazy about the NBA. Um, I never really considered doing anything else for a living uh, other than music. Um, I am a girl dad. I got three daughters um, and a beautiful wife. I, uh, um, you know, really lucky guy um i have been uh, able to do music uh, for the most part for a living for my whole adult life which uh has been long <laughs> so uh uh yeah so that's that, that's what i'm passionate about music basketball um and uh my family so uh who am i um my name's connor i grew up uh all over the place, but uh, was born in Los Angeles, uh, spent the majority of my life in Atlanta, Georgia, um, before moving uh, here to Nashville. Been in Nashville about six years now, uh, came up here to uh, write songs for other folks. And, you know, I had an opportunity to uh, do that. Uh, and so uh, the timing worked out and I moved up here uh, and I've been loving living in Nashville. It's a, it's a little big town. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So uh, there's that. And uh, why would I want to come on? Because uh, I, I, I'm, why would I not want to come on? Good answer. Spar with the greatest uh, minds of <laughs> Music City. I don't know. Oh wow, uh, a lot of pressure. Yeah. <laughs> well, I feel like uh, I feel like I've now backed you into a corner. Yeah. Now I, I better bring my A game to this episode. Then this is uh, oh, wow. All right. Well, let's do that then, and let's dive right in. And of course, we're going to talk all about your background as we go throughout the episode. First, I want to know about the background of the Southern Gothic, how you came together. So this was when you were in Atlanta, right? So take me through it. You and Sean came together, formed the band, and you guys were actually, some people might not know this, originally a cover band, correct? Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, I had uh, landed myself a pretty plush gig at the uh, Dixie Tavern in mm-hmm. Atlanta, which is uh, anybody that's really into music and has been to Atlanta is probably been to the Dixie Tavern. Uh, we got We were there every Saturday night. I was there every Saturday night for... I don't know, four and a half years. Um, and, uh, you know, started out with a totally different group of guys uh, when I got the gig and, uh, you know, eventually found the right pieces. And back in 2004, Sean started playing with me. Um, and, uh, yeah, we were doing um, we were doing hard rock covers. I mean, we were doing Marilyn Manson and Rage Against the Machine, Alice in Chains and that kind of stuff. Um, 
more than anything because I was young and lazy and that was just the covers I knew from being a teenager when mm-hmm. you learned to you know learn when I learned to play guitar and learned to sing so, you know that's what I was listening to so I learned to play those songs Metallica that kind of thing mm-hmm. and uh, I was really proud of uh the way we we sort of got ourselves out of that because um, the original stuff that that we were I was writing that we were performing was really like based on early records by the band and like Tumbleweed Connection by Elton John. Uh-huh. So it's like not Marilyn Manson right. type <laughs> songs. So um, we, uh, you know, like we started dropping these new songs We were that I was, you know, bringing to the band and we were working them up and we we're dropping them into these sets at Dixie and we were on the road doing cover band stuff everywhere. We were all over the place. And somehow, somehow or another, we were able to like find the spots in the set where it worked mm-hmm. and, you know, people would start asking me, oh, you know, who's who's that song? The one you played you know, after the Pearl Jam song. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was like, oh, it's one of, you know, one of my songs. And, you know, uh, eventually we... You know, we turned the you know turned the the ship around a little bit as far as like what covers we were playing, and we moved into less hard rock and mm-hmm. more like you know folk rock and pop rock and mm-hmm. you know that kind of stuff that that maybe fit a little more. Doing more Elton John, mm-hmm. doing more stuff by the band, doing yeah. you know Ray LaMontagne, doing whatever that kind of stuff, mm-hmm. and it kind of let us do what we were trying to do. Uh, somehow, most of the most of the fans came with us. You know, it was a slow enough. Slow enough turn that they were, you know, like that, that, uh, you know, they just stuck, stuck with us and they were into it. And, um, we did that for a while. And then I made a, wrote a record, um, kind of the second local independent record that I made with these, these group of guys, mm-hmm. uh, Sean and, and Joe Abrams, Abramson, um, who played bass for us for almost 10 years while we were in the studio. One night we all went out to a bar, um, and there was this cover band playing there and they had this, this dude and it was he was so out of place in this weird band. Mm-hmm. He was for one, he was like six foot ten, like uh-huh. really literally six foot ten, giant dude. And he's playing a violin, which looked ridiculous on him. <laughs> you know, it looked very tiny on yeah. him. Uh, anyway, it was just like it, it was weird, but then the, they let him like tear it up for a minute and he was just insane. Mm-hmm. So we were going in the studio, you know, we're right in the middle of making this record. We're gonna be in there all week. And I was like, man, this couple of these songs could really do with some some of that um and so i talked to him in between sets and he came up there and we uh he brought him up like two days later to the studio and and uh did uh you know played fiddle on like two or three maybe four songs on that record and uh everything just sort of changed then like we clicked with a different crowd of people mm-hmm. and um you know not to say that the the people that had been with us didn't stick with us but like it started growing really quickly mm-hmm. And we worked at uh, finding a fiddle player, and we found one, and we kept up doing kept up doing the cover gigs. But it went from ninety percent to sixty percent to you know. Eventually, we were doing you know two originals for every cover that we do. We were playing them at least convincingly enough that people just thought they were covers that they didn't know, mm-hmm. um, and they got into it. And you know, we sold you know an insane amount of records just like at the merch booth. When you're doing two hundred shows a year, um, you know if you can sell. 30, you know, records, you know, a night, you know, you're selling six, 7,000 records a year. That's big for, for a regional band to be able to, to, to do that. And mm-hmm. that sort of helped uh, kind of take us to that next level. 
Absolutely. And, you know, and I find it fascinating that it was, you know, kind of this like two degree by two degree turn. You know, it wasn't like this shift like, OK, we're doing originals now. It was this slow and steady. And you seem to like really find your niche and your sound and be able to grow within that organically, you know, from, from the sound of things. Could you have imagined like when you first started, like back in when you were doing the hard rock covers that you would have found this path that you, you discovered slowly here and that you've been on ever since? No, because even before the, the cover band, like I had, you know, I had some success with original bands, mm -hmm. um, but in, you know, hard rock. And then, then my first record deal was with a hip hop band out of Atlanta. So like, and, you know, we played with every, you know, everybody under the sun, Sublime, 311, No Doubt, all those kind of bands. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was like very successful, but I did not enjoy that because it was not, it wasn't my band. It wasn't right. my thing. Mm -hmm. um, and then really after that band broke up, we just had a buddy say, well, I'm playing at Jocks and Jills. I need my, my duo partner can't make it. Do you want to? play uh-huh like, what do you mean like wait you can play you can play <laughs> other people's songs and mm -hmm. for money and at the time you know at whatever 19 20 years old you know 200 bucks for on a friday night sounded like a, a fortune to play songs oh yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. so you know and then that quickly led into the um you know the cover band thing but if you'd ask me what the least likely thing that I would have been doing is it's like you know at being at the top of the country charts. I mean, like not in a million years would that have ever occurred to me. Right. It's amazing when you start a journey, like you know, you look back at the beginning years later and see where you've ended up. You know, and you're like gives you a chance to really appreciate that growth and where you've come from, how you've grown as an artist, how you've grown as a person, and it certainly does not come without work. And you guys have been grinding it out, like you said, two hundred shows a year for I think it was four years, and y'all earned everything you've gotten <laughs> to this point. You know, the features in Billboard, the appearances on the CMT charts. You know, getting to the top of those. You know, the opening gigs for people like ZZ Top, you know, Styx, you know, Willie, like all these artists. And I just think it's just speaks so much to the importance of realizing there's no such thing as overnight success. You know, I think a lot of people, especially in this day and age, expect that instant kind of gratification. Like I start the thing, I put it on social media and it works, you know, but you guys have proven that like it takes that grind so it it does and and man even when you get you know the things that you just listed when you get you know mm -hmm. top of top of the cmt countdown you get to you know on billboard and then maybe nothing else happens mm -hmm. and then you forget you forget you got to grind it out some more mm -hmm. and, you, and you're tired and you've been grinding it out and mm -hmm. and like it's, it's you're never gonna you're never gonna not grind you exactly know? like you may one day you know be to the point where you got people to grind for you mm-hmm but man, like, look at Ed Sheeran, man. That guy is, it's one thing to be in a band that can sell out a stadium. Mm -hmm. It's a totally different thing to be able to play a stadium with one guitar and your boy. Like, what kind of money must that guy be making? Insane. Unreal. But he's still, he's still writing songs six days a week. You know, you, you just read about the stuff and, and like, uh, I saw this little, little mini documentary about making Shape of You. I don't, I don't love Ed Sheeran, but man, I love his grind. Mm -hmm. That guy is, that guy's unstoppable, and there's a reason that he, he, you know, is is super rich and and you know, uh, able to do the things he's able to do and able to work with the people he's able to work with, and uh, I think it's only partially his talent.
Absolutely. You know, just the fact that he's been so open too. like, he's been willing to just cross genres. Like, you know, he does his own thing. And then like, he'll feature on artists that like, you would never expect to see Ed Sheeran, you know, the megastar he is like featuring on like independent artists. There's this uh, rapper Hoodie Allen, you know, when he was really coming up, you know, he's always been independent. He did a song with Ed Sheeran. And I'm like, Ed Sheeran, that Ed Sheeran. And like, that's the thing. He's just so open. He's willing to work. He's willing to collaborate. And he realizes, and this is if you're listening regularly and you're, you know, filling out your Quinspin drinking game card of the things I always say on the show, there's no finish line. You know, there's always that next thing. There's always that next project, that next milestone. Like, you can get to the top of a chart, you can get a feature on Billboard, but it's okay. What are you going to do with that momentum after that? You know, because that's what's going to keep you going year after year after year yeah well i mean like you know simply put if you've ever like looked up uh like a stock mm-hmm. and seeing what a stock has done and a successful stock right mm-hmm. it's not it's still not like a like a perfectly you know diagonal mm-hmm. line going up it, yeah. it goes up and it bumps down and, and you know i don't know man for, for me a, a career in music and, and probably other stuff but i don't know about that um career in music is kind of like one of those it's like a it's like a spring that like just gets a little bigger every circle mm-hmm. it's like okay well you're trying to like you're trying to get outside the last circle and just get a little bigger and a little bigger mm-hmm. and you know you have these you know, concentric spirals just to get in a little bigger every time. And, and, and it's never just going to, I mean, you know, you're going to make leaps maybe if you're mm-hmm. lucky uh, and, and work hard maybe you're going to make some leaps, but uh, you're going to also end up, you know, right back at, at the start and have to, have to, you know, like push that boulder up uh, the next hill. Yeah. It's interesting you mentioned leaps because I'm actually reading a book called The Slight Edge by Jeff Olson right now. And he was talking about the concept of a quantum leap and what that appears as like to just, you know, your casual bystander. A quantum leap, and I'm going to butcher the science behind this really, but like a quantum leap appears to be just like this leap and bound, like, you know, you were here one day and you're at the top the next. What it really is, it's all these little particles coming together to make it appear like an overnight success, to make it appear like whatever milestone, whatever accomplishment just appeared out of thin air. Right. But really, it's all these little things going into it, every little microscopic step, taking it one step higher every time. That's something that as you stay in the game longer, you really not only realize, but you really start to appreciate and almost not almost you do start to embrace, you know, the fact that like every little step, every little particle in, you know, this thing that materializes is just part of the process and you need every single one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, man. It uh, you know, it's uh, little wins building on little wins, and, you know, and, and sometimes it can be hard to see because you have a you know little win in column three, you know, when you get get a write up in you know this little blog, and then you get a you know little win in column twenty six, you know, because a guy you've been hoping to talk with at this independent label, um, you know, returns your email. And they don't necessarily like you don't necessarily you know see them as as correlating, but it's all about like the volume in your tank building up and like the winds build on top of winds, um, and and uh, you've, you you got to 
stop and appreciate those wins when you get them because um, that's the only uh, that's you know like the only real encouragement you're gonna get it's uh, you know man you know like nobody cares like right. you're on your own here mm-hmm. like you gotta you gotta be the one that's responsible for your own success right right and we all we all create something from nothing in the beginning right yeah. from square one <laughs> from you know from square one all it is is an idea all it is is hey I want to do this thing how do I do this thing and it's a lot of trial and error to figure out how to go about stacking those wins and even even getting your first few under your belt right it's a lot of trial and error it's a lot of rejection you know it's a lot of you know way more rejection oh yeah yeah way more rejection than than you know positive reinforcement by <laughs> by you know multiples Right, right. But like each each one of those rejections even informs the process of, as far as like what you can do better next time. What, you know, what parts of the process you need to refine, what parts of your own self and skill set, you know, professionally and personally that you need to work on, right? Because it all, it all feeds in, you know, yeah. especially in a creative industry, like you're really pouring yourself into this. And so as you go, so goes the project. So I think improvement in a professional sense, but also like in a self and a personal sense, super important here. And the more you get in tune and aligned with what you want, what your values are, the better it's going to go for you in the long run. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, I can say from personal experience, I certainly, you know, learn the hard way, you know, about how, you know, like if you if if something doesn't go well, you know, mm-hmm. and if you don't, you know, if you don't respond well to something to to a loss, uh, you know, you're going to make some enemies and, yeah. and like, you know. And then you get mad at those people and you're like, you know, that guy's, you know, such a jerk or whatever. And then you're like, actually, that was totally my fault. And, mm-hmm. I, you know, like I was being a baby about that, you know, but by then it's too late. Right. You know, <laughs> yeah. and it's too late. You'd be like, you know, you not only burned that bridge, but also like a bunch of people that that guy vented to about mm-hmm. you. Right. And, uh, you know, uh, you know, those those losses pile up, too. And, and yeah. self and self and uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Inflicted uh, self, losses are, yeah. are kind of the worst mm-hmm. um, because uh, you look back and you're like, man, why was I such a, you know, whatever. Yeah. And uh, and, you know, you got to. When you talk about you said a minute ago about uh, figuring out what you're really about, that that's important to do early on, and uh, you know have have that you know whatever inner manifesto to refer back to to mm-hmm. say wait hold on this is not who I am you know like I'm you know I'm acting you know like because I've been hanging out with these people I'm acting like these people mm-hmm. um and that's that's not who I want to be right. know, maybe may or maybe it is you know yeah. but but at least be able to uh to recognize you know how you're how you're acting how you're treating other people and yeah. and how it's going to come back you know to to affect you good or bad in the end right i think you can feel it in your gut too like especially as like as i get older like i feel intuitively like okay this is how i want to act versus this isn't and like if it's not like i just kind of feel this like okay shift course kind of thing like i'm big on intuition you know especially as i get older and like you kind of get this sense as you go and as you have this trial and error and you have some of these losses alongside these wins of what's right for you the types of people that are right for you the types of relationships you want to build it's just one of those things where it becomes more fine-tuned i think as you go but you have to go out and you have to fall on your face sometimes you know you have to have those losses but more importantly you have to be willing to learn from them you 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 can't have the loss blame it all on somebody else and then continue to have the same losses because at that point you're not really growing right yeah yeah and i i can tell you for sure i did that exact thing Mm -hmm. you know uh i screwed up and i decided that it was other people's fault and uh instead of fixing the problem 
I just stewed about it, mm-hmm. you know, and, uh, you know, and then by the time you, you know, by the time I did recognize my, you know, my contribution or, you know, my, my f- fault in the situation, uh, you know, there's a lot of repair work to do a lot more than would have been if I had just acknowledged that, you know, I, that, you know, I made a bad call mm-hmm. and maybe it was a, you know, you know, maybe it wasn't values based. Maybe it was just like, well, should we do this or should we do that? You know, mm-hmm. um, you know, in my case, you know, there was you know situation back in 2011 where uh, we had a chance to work with this um, producer. He's like, "I love what you're doing. Here's how I want to change everything about it." And uh, we we're like, "Man, I don't know. We're we're like starting to really hit, and we're getting some success. And you know, I think we're gonna, I think we're gonna pass." Mm-hmm. And like in the intervening eight years, the the dudes won like you know. 15 Grammys mm-hmm. and like, you know, produced every major thing. And uh, not only that, but like the thing that he had suggested to us, he went and made that exact record with somebody else and got nominated for a Grammy for it. So it's like, man, you know, like, uh, <laughs> you know, and that wasn't values based. It was mm-hmm. just, you know, uh, maybe it was, you know, maybe it was that I didn't want to see that, that like, yeah, what we were doing was cool, but we could, it could be better, mm-hmm. um, you know, if, if we listened to somebody else. So I don't know. You know, like, but we're, we all have those moments, right? Whatever, whatever it is, you know? Um, so, uh, you know, it's just a matter of, uh, being able to kind of go back to say, okay, this is, this is who I am, who I want to be. And yeah, I, I messed that up, but what can I do going forward? And, you know, Mm -hmm. how can I be a better person and better musician and better business person and all those things. And you've had a chance to experience much of the world to inform who you are, to inform your perspective. Uh, fun, you know, fun fact, you've lived all over the world as a kid growing up, like you lived all over the place. And I want to know what that did to inform your perspective, you know, not only as a person, but, you know, creatively and especially pertaining to the two records. We were talking offline about how the, that perspective, that experience of, you know, being so well traveled has informed things in different ways right as you've gone through your creative journey yeah absolutely um yeah so you know uh, my dad worked for the state department so we lived in a lot of places you know as a kid we were born i was born in los angeles we moved to jakarta we moved uh, all over the, back to the states we lived in dc we lived in um seoul korea we lived in brussels um so you know that that affected me in a lot of ways but first, uh, it it made me, or at least I I think it did. I think it made me like a little Pollyanna-ish as a kid. Like the, uh, you know, English language newspaper was like the the stars and stripes. Mm-hmm. So you know, it's you know it's a little it's a little glossy version of what's going on in the world. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. You know, and uh, you know, anytime you met somebody that was American, you know, like you were like drawn, you know, like you wanted to hang out with that kid or whatever. Mm -hmm. And it didn't matter, you know, if, if, you know, the kid was of Asian, Asian heritage or black or white or any of that. It was just like, Oh good. An American, you speak English. Awesome. You want to go to Burger King on base? (laughs) Uh, You know, like whatever, Uh you know, like, uh, so it, it was, uh, that. And when I finally did move back to the States as a teenager or like, you know, 12 years old or whatever, um, I was, and I, you know, moved to Atlanta. I was super surprised by like, well, the way people treated each other. And mm-hmm. it, it, like, you know, I don't know, like, it, you know, in my head, that had all been solved in the 60s. Right. You know, but when mm-hmm. I finally, I mean, like 12 years old living in the States, like, you know, the first day I go to school, it's just like people, you know, chucking racial epithets at one another. And you're like, oh my God, this is what, what where did, like, what, how did I get here? Um, so, uh, 
So I definitely think that like immediately when I moved back to the States, I was like, uh, all right, I'm going to go mm-hmm. hang out in my room. I don't, yeah. don't want to talk to anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, because it wasn't like this immediate sense of com- camaraderie right. that I had, you know, like grown up in. You know, it was like, oh, you know, your dad, you know, works for state. Oh, yeah, my dad works, for, you know, for the Defense Department. It's like, cool, you know, we're mm-hmm. here in this weird place. Let's hang out and know each other. And, yeah. You know. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my God, you got your grandma sent you Lucky Charms. Can mm-hmm. I, you know, can I have a bowl of Lucky Charms? Yeah. <laughs> so you know, you can't get that in Korea. So, yeah, um, yeah. so you know, I think that that was a uh, you know one thing. Uh, I think it, it definitely caused me to kind of like go into a shell. But I think during that time, I, I that was when I decided to really pursue music, and yeah. that I, that that it was the only thing. Mm-hmm. It was the only thing that like made sense anymore. And uh, when I made, made New Hometown, and that was like my semi autobiographical record, and it, it's super long. There's 20 tracks on it. Um, it's uh, you know, it's it's a lot of storytelling, and a lot of those stories uh, are about just traveling and being on to the next place and, you know, kind of sense of isolation. And, and then in the title track, it's about, you know, it's like about the actual story about mm-hmm. moving around and, and, uh, and how that sort of translated into my transient adult lifestyle, living in a van or a bus and, mm-hmm. you know, on in motels for 200 nights a year. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, I think that that had a lot to do with, with new hometown and, and the lyrical focus, um, since that time, I've I've had five years, uh, almost six in Nashville. I've been writing songs. My perspective has been a little bit different. Um, when you're not thinking about writing songs for yourself, because you're not, I'm not thinking about writing my autobiography for someone else to sing. Um, you know, when I'm trying to pitch a song, and I'm hoping that Eric Church hears it, or you know, whoever, you know, right. uh, somebody that's gonna, you know, do the song and get it out to to people. Um, my thought is to lyrically at least make it a little more um universal Mm -hmm. and um and so i think that that's kind of become my lyrical perspective is is trying to find a a universal thread that everybody can can grab hold of um but also growing up in korea um especially that was like elementary school for me so that's the one that sticks with me right um I was always very into music. My dad was a DJ before he, um, before he, you know, went to work for the government, and um, you know, there was always music in the house, and it was mostly like oldies. And, and my dad really liked country, and you know, that wasn't my thing when I was when I was young. But um, I wanted to be into what was like hip, you mm-hmm. know, what was popular at the time. Right. And little did I realize that the American music that made it to Seoul, Korea Mm -hmm. in 1987 or whatever was not necessarily (laughs) the same thing that was at the top of the charts here in the States. Mm -hmm. Um, So while I was like, you know, in elementary school and middle school and it was like listening to Madonna and Michael Jackson and the bangles and heart were my favorite. Mm -hmm. Um, I got back to the States and someone said Guns N' Roses. And I was like, who's Guns N' Roses? Right. I'm like, what? Mm-hmm. Have you been living under a rock? Yeah, sort of. Sort <laughs> of. It's called the American Embassy. Yes. <laughs> uh, I was living under that rock. Mm-hmm. And uh, um, so uh, on this new record, on Burning Moonlight, um, I was able to like find some of those feelings musically that, uh, that made me love music in the first place, mm-hmm. that made me 
feel like like I was home for a minute. Like mm-hmm. I was back in the states. Like you know everything was normal. They're singing to me in English, and um, you know, and uh, you know, so I was able to you know I felt like pay homage to to um, you know, and just like explore some of those same spaces, even if they are poppier than you know. Th- than you expect from a rock band or mm-hmm. Americana or whatever the hell kind of music we play. And I felt, you know, especially with this big long layoff, I felt sort of emboldened to try something new because it's like it's been a lot of years. And even by the time New Hometown came out, um, you know, we had been playing those songs for three and a half, four years. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I played those songs forever and I didn't feel like I wanted to recreate that record. Right. And, uh, you know, instead of looking for new inspiration, I, I went back and, and uh, you know, kind of took the, you know, the original inspiration. Mm-hmm. You know, my mom, when I got married, gave my uh, my wife this, like, book of, uh, like, art and things that I made when I was a kid. Mm-hmm. Just, you know, silly stuff like that. Yeah. And on one page, there's a folded piece of construction paper and says, Miss Lombardi's first grade class. What are you going to be when you grow up? And you open it. And I've drawn myself with a microphone. Uh-huh. This is first grade. You know, with a microphone, it says, I'm going to be a singer. I'm going to take Michael Jackson's place. Don't know what that means exactly. Uh-huh. Um, and I'm going to decide that it just means I'm going to be the king of pop. You know, mm-hmm. from a very young age, like it never even occurred to me that it was an unreasonable goal mm-hmm. for me, you know, to be, you know, uh, a famous singer, you know, making my living, you know, singing my songs for people. Right. Right. It's interesting to be able to make that kind of creative pivot, though, that that you mentioned, you know, to where you're able to bring, you know, go back to your musical roots, but also try new things. You know, it speaks to your versatility and also it does stretch you creatively. Right. After a while of doing all these, you know, all these different projects and versions of the Southern Gothic that have led you here. Now you're able to bring more elements, you know, into the melting pot, as it were, and create something completely fresh and new, you know, that draws on everywhere you've been in a sense beforehand, you know, and the process itself for this record too, a little different because a lot of this was created in the studio as opposed to on the road. Correct. So yeah, let's discuss that process. You had a chance to work with Jonathan Roy and Keith Hedrick on this record, you know, as you know, on the production end and just how that all came together in the studio for you and what that process was like, how that stretched you creatively here. So it was two, two different processes entirely. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I'm, we did past midnight with Keith. That was that we did that separately. We did that first. Right. Um, that was, uh, you know, I, I met Keith, we were at a, we both got invited. We have a mutual friend that was, uh, shooting a pilot, had a television idea and mm-hmm. he needed an audience. So, uh, Keith and I actually met at this thing. Um, and he had moved to Nashville two days before and, uh, it's like, cool, man, let's get together. Let's hang out, whatever. And, um, you know, we got together in a little studio he was renting and we, you know, played around and, you know, with some different things. And uh, I just come back from Sweden. I'd been writing with pop artists for three weeks. So I was like really in that frame of mind. And we wrote some like real, real pop oriented stuff. And, and then I played him like what I normally do. And he was like, oh, wow. He's like, this is not this at all. He's like, he's like, oh, did I wait? You know, you know, sorry. I, you know, you should have told me this before. I was like, no, this is great. I want to, you know, I want to branch out. I want to try new things. I want to mm-hmm. see where, where it takes me. And, um, so, uh, Keith and I, the next time we got together, we brought in uh, my buddy, Mason Thornley, who's a, a writer here in, in Nashville. And man, that guy can write a song. Um, and, uh, 
you know, we basically brought him in and said, okay, let's country this up. Mm-hmm. You know, not not that we had started writing past midnight, just like, let's take this idea that Keith and I are, you know, working with, with like, you know, a pop rock band, uh, you know, like a, you know, like a different, you know, kind of pop sensibility coming from Keith's end mm-hmm. and uh, bring Mason in, who's, who's you know, well known around town for, for very cool country songs. And we, uh, and we came up with past midnight and, uh, you know, that was really cool. And, that song, you know, we recorded it a bunch of different times. And finally, um, we brought in the band and recorded it the last time. We we're like, okay, there it is. Mm-hmm. Now we, you know, now we, now we've realized what we were missing. We needed that live band element. Yeah. Uh, the rest of the record, um, uh, or at least four of the tunes we made with, uh, Jonathan Roy, um, who actually Mason recommended, uh, to me. And we, we, uh, went and spoke with a bunch of different producers and he and I just seemed to, seemed to, you know, hit it off the best. And, and, uh, he definitely had some experience bringing some of those pop elements into, into a rock band. Um, and so, uh, that was a lot of fun. And we, we really tried some different things. Definitely, there's no way these songs would sound like this if we had written them on the road like New Hometown because, mm-hmm. you know, some of the stuff is just like we had to go back and figure out, well, how the hell are we going to play this for people? This yeah. is like, it's like, oh, I don't even know how to make, make these sounds. <laughs> or like, you know, what do you want me to mm-hmm. Like, am I playing like keyboard with my left hand and like playing open string? Well, what, <laughs> how am I doing this? Like, what's going on? Right. So, um, you know. You know, there was that whole moment where we figure out how, how do we play these songs now because we'd been playing them, you know, rock style, mm-hmm. you know, before when in the studio. Also, though, like, uh, song Ain't Gonna Lie, we uh, got in the studio and recorded it. And, you know, I've been playing it at songwriter rounds, right? So the acoustic guitar, kind of like low key or whatever. Mm-hmm. But when we brought the band in and I went to sing it, like, I couldn't really, like, push and, like, you know, holler, which is what I do. Mm-hmm. And so we had to, like, do it again uh not the drums luckily but everything else we had to do again like in a much higher key mm-hmm. so that i could really get after it um and that would that would have never happened like if I, you know from new hometown by the time we got there like i basically knew where every ooh and ah went i knew where i was gonna you know you know say yeah you know mm-hmm. all that stuff because i'd been doing you know i'd played the song 200 300 times right. on the road mm-hmm. and uh you know, and I, I we felt comfortable in it. You know, and that that was the thing. You know, I playing with the same group of uh, guys and girl for so long. It, it was it did get to be second nature, and we didn't have to think about stuff. And we didn't have to worry about what somebody else was doing, and and uh, so you know, they were very very different experiences. Mm-hmm. So, what are some of your favorite moments from on the record? Uh, on this record, actually, you know, um, we had a, a we had a late change to the mm-hmm. record um and took one off and put uh this uh, a, a new song called villain mm-hmm. on there and mm-hmm. man i love that song and and uh that was a song i wrote with quinn loggins and another buddy of of ours uh trafton harvey um and quinn um quinn put that whole song together quinn you know played the drums and the um guitar and bass on that and uh and i love it man and and uh Honestly, that uh, that vocal, there's places where it's really just me imitating the way Quinn sings it when he does. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I love that song. Um, that w- that would definitely be uh, uh, my favorite uh, tune on the record. But but I, I love all of these songs. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, Gravity is a lot of fun. It's like it's like a kind of Maroon Five moment for us. Uh, mm-hmm. Wrote that song with LV Shane, and it's probably one of the reasons I love it so much. Is uh, LV and I wrote that. Um, 
at a songwriter retreat and we had, had to take like a five o'clock flight out of Nashville to Las Vegas and then get to Las Vegas. And it's another like three hour drive to this like mountain in Arizona. And then we got there and they fed us, um, you know, and it was West Coast time. So it was still like nine o'clock in the morning their time. So they fed us a big <laughs> breakfast. And then LB and I sat down and wrote that song, um, you know, in about hour and a half. And uh, that's a lot of fun. That's, that's a, it's, it's a, you know, it's one of the more rocking moments on the record. I, I just have to say, the Vegas flights out of here, either super early or super late. <laughs> like, super early or super late. I took one of those 5 a.m. ones out yeah. there, too. I get out to, I had a layover in Phoenix, and it was like 8 o'clock. I'm like, I've been up for like six hours already. <laughs> how, how is it still 8 o'clock? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, I think I had calculated, I woke up, or I had been up since like 1 o'clock Pacific time, like by 9 o'clock that night I was done. Yeah. Right, no yeah. way. But no, it was just funny you mentioned that, and I just wanted to <laughs> chime in there, because all, all your flights to the West Coast out of here, like, from my experience, have either been like super early in the morning, or like coming back, like you get back here at like 2 in the morning. It's so strange. Yeah. So strange. I, I, you gotta think that's probably gonna end soon as, as Nashville keeps growing. People are gonna demand Demand, demand more, demand better from Southwest. Oh yeah, well, I mean, you have a lot of people. More and more people come for, coming from LA too. Yeah, you know, mm -hmm. like there's a much more of a pipeline between all the music hubs now than even five years ago. I would say, you know, Nashville is becoming less and less like a well kept secret, you know, for all genres of music. And now, like, you have this flood of people coming here, so like, it's becoming more and more open. I mean, they're adding another terminal, I think, over on a BNA right now. If they haven't finished, I it think already. it's done. Yeah. Oh, it is? Yeah, I think so. I haven't been there since March because, you know, COVID. But, yeah. but I saw they were doing that. I'm like, well, that makes sense because, you know, you got you have more and more people coming this way. So the future now, I mean, obviously, speaking of COVID, COVID pending, you know, we're as of recording still in the in the muck and mire of it all, you know, just trying to figure out what the future looks like as far as getting back out on the road. With the EP out, what's next for you guys? Um, well, uh, we are working on... Um and uh, could have possibly announced a uh, date for our uh, our live stream. Mm -hmm. It's really gonna be the only show of the tour. Um, you know, it's yeah. like uh, you know, what day is it gonna be uh, for? When are you coming to St. Louis? When are you coming to D.C.? When are you coming to New York? Same day. Mm -hmm. we're gonna, this is it. So we're gonna do a, a big uh, a big uh, CD release uh, kind of. Uh, live stream and then uh i think the earliest that any of us can really hope to do any real touring is may and i think yeah. that's probably op optimistic mm -hmm. still yeah but uh the single has been really killing in uh, the uk and starting to and you know move in scandinavia so um right now we're that's going to be our focus we're going to go where uh you know spotify makes it easy man they're like well, you know we'll show you exactly what cities people are listening to your song and mm -hmm. it's like copenhagen huh all right, let's do it. We're going. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, what, that's beautiful. Yeah. You know, the fact that you just have that data at your fingertips, yeah. you don't have to get in a van and guess or on a plane, as it were. Yeah. You're able to target much more readily. You know, you're able to target your audience and I think have more success out on the road now because of all these tools we have. Well, and I think that uh, uh, in UK, especially um, the Americana scene there, it like started with a few people mm -hmm. and, you know, then they started kind of like you know, getting the word out and making it popular. So it's like, if you can connect with those people, um, they can basically put you in touch with every country fan, you know, in the United Kingdom. Right. So like, you know, so that's, uh, you know, that's the goal. And, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, if, 
yeah, if we can do that, if we can go over there, if we can spend the summer, uh, you know, playing over there and talk to a couple of uh, producers in London and, you know, maybe we'll do the next record over there while we're there. And, you know, maybe I'll find out what the London sounds about, you know, mm-hmm. like uh, I'm, I'm open to anything. So, um, I, you know, I think for us, you know, uh, someone who's been doing it as long as I have now, I just got to kind of ride the waves and, and uh you know, see which direction it takes me and not be too, uh, not be too precious about, you know, any, any little aspect of, of what I think's next, you mm-hmm. know. Just... I love it. I love it. We got to have that flexibility, especially if 2020's taught us anything. It's that, yeah. right? We always have to be will- willing to make that pivot, yeah. <laughs> you know, wherever, whatever it is, you know, we have to keep our options open. While this has been wonderful, Connor Christian of the Southern Gothic joining us here on the Quinspin. Before I let you go, uh, where can people learn more about you guys online and follow the journey? Yeah. Um, so if you want to um, visit our site, it's the Southern Gothic Music.com, the Southern Gothic Music.com. And, um, you know, if you sign up for the email list there, we'll send you a little exclusive subscriber track. We uh, get in touch uh, once every couple months, let you know what's going on. We're at at the Southern Gothic on Instagram um, and Facebook. Um, we are uh, at Connor Christian on Twitter because the Southern Gothic won't fit. We're you know on Spotify and Apple Music and wherever else. All right, make sure you check them out. The Southern Gothic, the new EP. Out now, burning moonlight. And this has been the Quinn Spin. There's two ends in Quinn, two ends in Spin. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Anchor, Stitcher, and more. Also on all the socials, Instagram, at Quinn Spin Official, Facebook, and Twitter. And of course, Underground Music Collective. That's the big one. That's the central hub, undergroundmusiccollective.com, as well as on all the socials. That's Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn now, as well as YouTube. And of course, the UMC 20 playlist you can find on Spotify. Also, it's December now, so the new UMC 50 for the whole year is out. Go check that out. That's all I've got for you today. The Mad Sugars We Want the Night is our closing theme song. Stay tuned for that. And Timothy Miles will join us to close out the year two weeks from today. Hey now. Hey now.